From New Orleans, this is Mindset. Psychiatrist Dr. Nick Pajic interviews the leading lights of America's most fascinating city. This is psychiatrist Dr. Nick Pajic. Aiden Guilford Men is the name of a store on Lower Magazine Street, the end of the street just before it turns one way, that used to be run down and dangerous after dark. Now it's probably the hippest block on the street. Aiden Guilford Men opened when the block was still bad, and walking through the door was always quite shocking. It still is. You're transported back to a genteel age when men's faces were shaved by other men with straight razors. The floors are tile, wooden display cases are home to fine soaps, men's manicure tools, hip flasks, and silk ties. And a slick, good-looking Irishman with a semi-pompadour and a bow tie is ringmaster and raconteur. But anyway, enough about you, but still not enough about me just yet, right? Nothing you wouldn't dare call this gentleman a hairdresser. He's a barber. This is Aidan Gill. In the beginning, you were sort of sh not shy, but you're not quite sure yourself, so you're trying to build your confidence and your skills. Mm -hmm. And you have to listen to a lot of stuff from people, a lot of opinions. Mm -hmm. and a lot of the misinformed, stupid stuff you don't agree with, and you go along with it. And then once you find your voice, mm -hmm. you're basically saying, shut up and listen. <laughs> I'm not listening to you people anymore. I'm going to talk. So unless, uh, you know, you find someone very interesting, um, you will have to listen to a lot of dross. And after years and years and day in and day out, you don't want to listen to it anymore. So unless somebody's telling you or informing you of something really fascinating or interesting, I tend to just tell them something fascinating or interesting. <laughs> I'm from Dublin, and mm -hmm. pretty much everybody in Dublin is very opinionated. Mm -hmm. It's a genetic thing. It's the water, the Guinness, the Liffey. You just yeah. have an opinion. And, and, it's a, and it's musical culture as well. So yeah. it's kind of like that, the lyricism that goes along with the culture. It's the storytelling and yeah. people getting their point across. So everybody has yeah. a view. So I tend to like to get my view across. So, What do you think uh, your views are then? My views are... Dependent upon the weather, mm -hmm. the time of year, <laughs> my bank balance, it always depends. I mean, I think there are certain views that people have that we all have that are steadfast. Do you ever catch yourself talking about or perseverating about one topic? And then after a while, you know, over years of talking to people, realize like you, there's, there's an issue, you have an issue with something and, mm. and or anything like that? Yeah, I think you do. Anything in particular? I think the... Um, the whole American dream thing. Yeah. When you get here, and when you, when you, when well, your story you, is like that, though. Too. Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, you get to America, and and I've done very well in America, and it's been very good to me. But I was a little sort of surprised and amazed, and the more I traveled around, at how many people were not making it. Mm -hmm. You know, and it just seems to be coming more pervasive that there's a lot more have-nots. You know, and they seem to multiply. So that's a. a, a you know, it's, a, it's an issue that I have, especially with some of my right-wing Republican clients who mm -hmm. think that if everybody, they say, pull them up by their bootstraps, and I go, what if you have no boots? Yeah. It's the same thing that a rising yeah. tide will float all boats, but what are the people who don't have boats? Yeah. So I have a, an issue with um, the system of uh, rewards and government here. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's healthy. I think the, it's, it's a question of, it's not America take it or leave it, it's America take it and change it and change it mm -hmm. for the better. And I think in the last 200 and something years, the waves of immigrants of all types, Muslims, Jews, Irish, mm -hmm. Protestants, whatever they were, and now sort of Central South Americans, they're changing the country, but it's not getting worse. Mm 
Mm-hmm. I don't think the you know the moral fabric is falling apart. I think the country's becoming stronger because it's got a better pool of of opinions. Right, kind of more balanced than before. Do you, why do you think that you made it? Um, I don't know. I mean, I can't really put a put a, 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 my finger on it, and I don't think you could write it down. Um, I was committed to doing well because that that was just the way it was. I had been offered a scholarship mm-hmm. to Trinity College in Dublin when I was very young, before I left high school. And yeah. I was too smart at the age of 16 to want to go to college, so <laughs> I left, I left um, high school, graduated high school at 16, and then I wanted to get a job to work because I wanted money because we, were, we lived in very, very humble circumstances. So mm-hmm. couldn't find a job in Dublin because I had long hair. So that was a bit of a problem. Not going to go to college, couldn't get a job. So I found a barber shop that would have been called, today would be called very hipster. Yeah. And this was in 1969. And it was, I walked in to get a trim and it was um, called the Bowler Hat on Baggett Street in Dublin. And it was operated by a guy called Pete Thompson. And he was known in Dublin as Pete, the king of the mods. Oh, yeah. He was like the yeah. Quadrophenia character that Sting played. He was the man. So they wanted an apprentice, and they were playing Cream on the hi-fi. Mm-hmm. And I looked around, I listened to the music, and I thought, these are my people. Yeah, right, I felt so like I just arrived at the Wailing Wall. Why, and why were they your people, though? Cause because they were hip, and they had long hair, and they had yeah. funky mod clothes, and they wanted an apprentice, and they would give me a job, and I was kind of part of that tribe. And um, sort of like one flying burrito, all the tattooed people, they sort of congregate among each other. Yeah. Especially when you're young, you have to find your gang. So did you, was that the, your kind of coming of age moment where you said you identified more with that group and said, this is what I'm going to do for however No, long? no, no, not at all. It was just to get a job, actually, is what I wanted. Yeah. In a place that would be, would reflect what I wanted, which was loud music, you know, and uh, you could wear the sun at the kind of mod hipster clothes that yeah, you wanted. Sure, you could sure. let your hair grow and you could be hip and cool and all the rest of it. And I thought I fit in. So... The job fitted me and I fitted the job at the time. Um, I decided after about eight or nine years being a barber, which was a humble sort of position, and there wasn't a, lot of, a huge amount of money in it, I decided that this is going to be my lot. This is going to be my work in life. I would be the best barber in the history of the universe. I mean, I was just going to be, I was going to build the best barber shop. I was going to do everything better, and I was going to do that slowly. But I wasn't doing it in comp- competition with anybody else. In fact, I didn't really care or think much about what anybody else was doing. So it was like almost self-competitive then? It was a mission that I was on. I was going to create, I was going to bring back the barbershop from extinction, which back in the early 80s, it was almost, you know, they were just closing down, you know. So where do you, what is it, where do you think that comes from then for inside of you, like that, that kind of um, desire to move forward, to progress? It's just a natural thing to, to do things well and to do things not too extreme, but as well as you can do them. And I think I've, that's, that's in me. I've done that forever. Even since you were a young kid? Yeah. Really? Yeah. How, many kid, how many siblings do you have? I'm number nine of 11. Well, well, five have already died. Okay. So there's six left. Wow. So I have five siblings left right now, and five have passed away. How did that affect you, I guess? Well, it's not very pleasant to be in that situation, as anybody can tell why, you. It's, why it's, not? Well, it's a bit of it's a, the Frank McCourt thing. You know, yeah. Angela's ashes. You're basically in a crowd in crowded conditions in the inner city, yeah. and you have absolutely no options. And you're poor, and your f- parents have very few options. You're mm-hmm. dominated by a church state, which you know that the yeah. whole idea that the Catholic Church in Ireland ran things 
they were like the shadow government and yeah. um, there were a lot of restrictions on people so mm -hmm. um, you were sort of kept in your place and uh, you know you if you weren't chosen you weren't chosen so your whole sort of view was going to be grim mm -hmm. you know a lot of people were just heading wow. for the factories and emigration everybody in our family emigrated left the country every single person one after another they just emigrated and it was natural for me to get on got on a bus one evening and and with two ham sandwiches and 12 pounds and go down the street get on the bus go to the docks get on the boat and go to england mm -hmm. i didn't it was a little bit of an adventure at the time but it yeah, wasn't like say. amazingly strange and difficult and you know i'm going on a big it was like my brothers did it my sisters did it before me and it was i was at that age okay you're 17 yeah here's your bus fare here's your boat ticket off you go so your parents had no expectation or pushed you one way or the other what you would do they kind of or, or did they well my mother had died when i was 17 oh really and my father died when i was 23 so they were it's pretty traumatic how did that affect you it was terrible yeah yeah without a doubt how it's, do you think it, it it did it did you make any decision decisions based on their deaths uh to change your own life at the time no 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 i don't have um i don't have a look back mentality mm -hmm. i've never been back to my mother's grave i think i've been back to my mother's grave once in the last 40 years how come it's just i just you know, I don't need to do that. I don't feel that going to the, you know, people do it. It's a, I understand that people do it. I, I understand grief a lot, but sure, uh, yeah, yeah. it's not something I find necessary for my, uh, the process of losing somebody. Because I don't think you ever lose anybody. They're always there. They're always, they exist. All of their components exist in your imagination. You can dream them up any day. And you can, yeah. Well, as people say, what would mother say? What would your father say? Or yeah. whatever. So I don't really consider people to be, you miss them, but they're not totally expunged, and I don't need to go back to, say, a gravesite to, to connect with them. If you, um, if you did, do you think it would be pretty traumatic for you? Mm, I don't know. Yeah. I'd have to be there, as they say. Sure, um, sure. Yeah, I'm not avoiding doing it, but um, yeah, I suppose it would be. But they, I, guess, I guess then I would, I'm interested in knowing, in a family of 11 kids, how close can one get to their parents? I could, you know, how, how close were you able to get to your mom and dad? Um, I think my mother was one of those perfect Irish mothers from Central Casting. She really was a great, you know, person, a great difficult circumstances. So she was connected yeah. to everybody. Mm -hmm. There's nobody in the family who wouldn't, doesn't, wouldn't tell you that or wouldn't feel that, that bond. That bond she was bond fabulous, mom, you know, yeah. she was fabulous, did the best she could. And my father drank a lot. Mm -hmm. So he was absent in that sense. What did you have? Did you witness his drinking or the fallout from his drinking growing up? Not just the fallout, but the falling over. How about that? <laughs> yeah, the usual. It was a typical, you know, it was Irish you yeah. know, family. of it. Um, was it abusive? And a lot of times, you know, other patients of mine, they'll have fathers who are alcoholics and where, you know, there's frankly, frank abuse well, going on. Well, he had a very terrible temper when he was drunk. So everybody, you know, you basically learn not to get in the crosshairs. But, you know, so you had to be very careful of when he was drinking, that yeah. you didn't upset him in any which way. So he had to be extremely creeping around, basically. Does that still, I mean, did that experience growing up with a dad who had been drinking heavily affect you even throughout your adulthood at all? No. No. No, it's, it's not. I don't, um, I see him as, you know, he is who he is in his situation. Mm -hmm. And I'm very fortunate that I'm not in that situation where you get locked into a culture that really yeah. promotes childbirth. 
You know, there were, there were instances in Ireland, not many people noticed. I mean, it wasn't talked about because it's critical. Mm-hmm. But the parish, you get, a woman would get married, say, the 21 or whatever it was, and t- two years later there'd be no child, no sign of pregnancy, and, and it was not unknown. It wasn't common. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't unknown for the parish priest to maybe stop her on the church steps and say, well, Maureen, um, you don't look well. You're looking very peaky. Hmm. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make an appointment with uh, Dr. Flanagan next week. You know, and they basically trying to send this woman off to the doctor to ensure that she was not using contraceptives. Oh, really? Uh, or, the, you know, because she wasn't, oh, you know, wow. pumping out a baby every 18 months. How does that relate back to your dad, though, and his, and his situation, you said? I'm saying that I'm just I'm trying, I'm painting a picture of the situation they lived in, the circumstances of the culture they were brought up in. There's a pressure to have <clears throat> children. Yeah. Pressure to have children. There was no um, unemployment was massive. Yeah. There was no yeah. possible way out. It wasn't like except if you emigrated. So you, those are reasons you, you ascribed to your dad's penchant for drinking. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was like a miserable side to drink. I'd have drank more than him. <laughs> I mean, so um, that's what's it like though to think that your dad was in such difficult situation that he was forced to have kids, and you're one of those kids. And I mean, did you ever have sense that? Um, he was angry that he had so many kids. Was that a, a I think he hated the whole system that he lived under. I mean, he said it more than once. He couldn't stand it. The Catholic Church ran the country through the government. Yeah. And so there was no, you know, there was all of this. There was two choices for an Irish bride when she got married. One was perpetual pregnancy or the other one was perpetual virginity. So they were just... That's the way to put it. Yeah. People were trapped in this sort of... You know, people, I mean, we had 11, but there were people with 18, 20 kids, you know, and they were, wow. these women were just worn out. And, and I think the, there was a magical number. I think it might have been 18 children. Wow. At one time, that magical number in Dublin, you went to the Lord's Mayor, Lord Mayor's Mansion, and the bishop and the Lord Mayor presented you with a medal. It was like something from Stalinist Russia, where if you dug ten tons of coal, you got the you order got, of Lenin. You got, right, right. So it, this, <laughs> the, the, you know, the whole church was to have as many children as possible. Procreation was their whole deal. It was Monty Python. But also, though, your dad would talk about the government and the system, right? But I'm not quite certain if you knew what, how he felt about you guys, though, or you. You know what I mean? Um, I, I think he was so, you know angry with the whole with his situation that he was in that he didn't have a lot of time to um i think he avoided his home life because it was basically a nightmare yeah there was yeah. 11 children three of them are you know before i was born three of them died from um consumption oh my god yeah. T- tb, TB so he was not yeah. his home when he opened the front door it was like fuck you know yeah. so he was off to the pub where it was warm and people friendly and he was a he was a gentleman at the pub, and everybody thought he was wonderful because he was very well read and intelligent. So his whole life, his ego existed in the pub. That's where he was somebody. When he came home, mm-hmm. he was in a pile of shit. You know, fathers loom large in our imaginations, as you were saying before. What is it like for you to have a dad like that, who was at the pub, kind of larger than life, it seems, a gentleman, and, and for you to be an adult, you know, and, and how you view yourself, and I don't know, well, if I may, um, as I say, you get to a point in your life where you you realize you're separate. You know, you're totally separate from these people and your parents or your siblings. 
yeah. and your yeah. situation is your own and your all of your you know um, everything that happens in within your life and your inner life is your own it's not somebody else's you can reference yeah. it but if that makes you know people we all I mean I know this because I used to carry stuff around for a long time but if you don't let it go and become who you are and be responsible I'm not an alcoholic like my father was I'm not going to become an alcoholic yeah, sure. I'm quite aware of, you know, I'm sort of aware of that. I look and go, oh, maybe Andrew. And I'm very conscious of that thing. So whatever else, I, would, I might become a gambler. Well, I'm not, because I can't gamble. I don't know how to gamble. But, you know, so <laughs> there are things. you in check in knowing that your dad had trouble with yeah. that. You kind of And I've read a lot about it. Yeah. I've read a lot about it. So I understand how. About alcoholism, yeah. per se? Yeah. It's insidious. It's not right. about your character or your circumstances. After a certain amount of time. You know, as you as you get older, um, it just it will creep in and it will take over. Have you had ever had trouble with alcohol or your siblings at all? I have an alcoholic brother. Mm -hmm. I mean, full blown bona fide. Yeah. You know, the the real deal. The real deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's you know older than me, and but he's in living in England, which is the great socialist paradise, and it's cradle to grave. So he's well looked after. He's got a lot of care. You had mentioned too that you carried a lot of stuff with you in the past. And that that you kind of discarded or put aside. May I ask some of that stuff? Um, being born in Ireland and having that whole Irish Catholic um, guilty, not guilty, it's not Irish Catholic guilt. It's sort of a way of looking at the world mm -hmm. that you realize would work there in mm -hmm. that environment. But when you move away from the environment, you have to get another way of looking at it. So I've dropped a lot of the Catholic ideologies and... The whole and the Irish. I'm no longer just Irish, you know. I don't. I don't. I am Irish, born and bred and raised and educated, but I'm no yeah, longer yeah, just yeah. that. And it, I call myself a tricultural hybrid. So, so Irish, American, and I lived in England for 17 years. English. I lived in Ireland for 17 years. I've lived here for 20 something years. So I've absorbed yeah. a lot of those cultural ideas and those. You know, you live there. You watch TV. You read the paper. You read the books. You talk to the people. You look at the sports. You get a lot, a lot from it. It becomes a little part of you. And if you live there long enough, oh yeah, you know, I'm not quite, you know, speaking the Queen's English, but you know, what's the biggest difference between Ireland and England for you, or was the biggest difference? England was much more liberating. There was much more of a sort of um, more possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of I mean, six, there's three and a half million people in Ireland when I left. There were almost sixty million people in Britain. Mm -hmm. It had a diverse population. It had its immigration things going on. It had yeah. a lot, had a lot of different people, different cultures. So London was huge, and also it was a big. Even when I was there, I got there in 1971. It was still going through, evolving through the 60s and 70s, and the whole sort of pop culture. Oh yeah. You know, and and the sort of revolution, if you want, art and architecture and all the rest of it was changing. What's it like for you to to become part of New Orleans then? Because I remember after Katrina. Uh, you you had a banner up above your shop, a magazine that said, um, what did it say? No Surrender. No Surrender. And I remember seeing that and and just kind of feeling a sense of solidarity that there were other people in the city who had different signs up, whether it be you know boards in their house or what you had done. Well, that, um, that No Surrender thing, um, it's, it's claimed by the Protestants in the north of Ireland as, as one would, that they had, but it was also... Um, one of the Irish revolutionaries who was executed in 1916 after the rebellion, hmm. his name is James Connolly, and he was executed actually sitting in a chair because he was too badly wounded to stand. So he faced the firing squad in a chair, and his last words were "No surrender." So it's kind of a little historical, you know. Yeah. It's a little playing on playing on the history of it, but also you're still an Irishman at heart, though. It's oh yeah, that sentiment. 
but also I thought I was not, it wasn't just no surrender to you know the forces of nature I was not going to surrender to all the stupidity and ignorance that had brought a, brought this situation to a head and we all know that the reason the city flooded was not the hurricane it was the bad workmanship it was the shoddy construction yeah. the bad planning the you know all of the ignorance and stupidity yeah. management of the city and the politicians I was as angry at them as I was anybody else so yeah. I was not just I was not necessarily supporting the city I was saying fuck the city fuck you all I'm not going to get put down by mm-hmm. you people because you're backward and stupid and you let this happen to why a great did you, why did you stay then a lot of people felt angry at the federal government okay um, I, but they didn't really feel I, I had a, an, an argument with a young man who's, who was, had an organization called uh, levies.org. What was the argument about? Well, he was saying, oh, he said, uh, hold the core responsible or something like that, or blame the core. And I said, I've got, he wanted to give me a bumper sticker. And I said, no, I've got one for you. Mm-hmm. He said, what's that? I said, hold the citizens responsible. Hmm. I said, you spent, you know, 50 years or more not caring about roads, streets, yeah. schools, healthcare, poverty, education. You don't care about anything. In fact, you've got it down so well that you've twisted the language into a phrase that says, the city that care forgot. Mm-hmm. I said, I'll tell you what, it's the city that forgot to care. If you don't care about anything in your, the fabric of your city and its life, how do you expect to have good levies? Yeah. I said, and there's engineers from, the, from uh, the Corps of Engineers, they went to Tulane. They're from here. The enemy is you. Yeah. And you have let you've let this happen, and you're now you're blaming everybody else. But if you'd have kept your eye on the ball, maybe they wouldn't have given you third-rate levies. So, what was your mindset then, leaving or after Katrina? You you come back, your store or stores are both open. No, I only had one store. You had at that one time. store at the time. It was looted. Had you? It was looted. Yeah. Oh, my God. Did you have insurance for yourself? Oh yeah, I was fully. That's another thing. I had, I had insurance for business interruption, looting. You know any damages at all so I came out and with the federal government when they gave us tax refunds the following year I came out whole okay I won't say very far ahead because the losses that disrupt disruption of uh, business and all your life being you know totally uprooted trauma what how was that for you and was it was it hard did were you were you down you know I was fueled I was I was angry so that was my fuel yeah. I could have went depressed and you know sat around all day and shot myself like some people did, unfortunately, but I decided to get fuck them. How did the anger manifest itself then? Just by, I mean, it was a lot of work, a lot of, you know, getting it together. I had to work a lot more than I had been on the floor cutting hair than I had before the storm. So I had to work a lot. And, mm-hmm. and yeah. I was less patient with stuff that I would normally be patient You're with. You were more irritable, I mean? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just, so you, would your store damage too with the looting? Did they break the glass in your store? No, or they, 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 they thank God, they were interrupted by a neighbor and they ran off. But good. So, oh, good. so we were saved, you know, we could have been destroyed, but that was um, very uh, upsetting to say the least. Man, that made me pissed as well. Yeah. You know, the fact that the police couldn't do their job and 30% of the police ran away, yeah. cowards, you know, that, that sort of, you have to deal with that. You go, we knew we had a difficult and poor police force, and you realize, well, if you're really against the wall and difficult, they'll run away and they won't help you. What do you What do you like about being in New Orleans? I mean, I know a little bit about what upsets you about it. What are the things? Why do you Why do you stay here then? And, and what do you like about it? You know, I like the whole fact that it's um, um, it's actually it's quite like Dublin in a lot of ways. There's mm-hmm. a lot of characters in Dublin. There's yeah. a lot of people here that. Um, well, there wouldn't be a tolerance for them in other places, so it's where all the um, 
all the weirdos and characters come to be more eccentric. And do, you, do you view yourself as a character, an no. eccentric person? No, not eccentric at all, but no. I am who I am. <laughs> right. You know, people know that. I think you have a unique um, character in that you're Irish. Um, you have, you know, the Gentleman's Shop, a magazine, and the one downtown as well. And you're out and about, too. You, you enjoy nightlife and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and you dress very well. Where do you get the dress from? Or where does that come from? That's totally, and I was like that as a kid. Really? I'm just totally dandy. Stopper Dan from the get-go. Um, and you wear bow ties. We wear bow ties, yeah. Everybody, all the males at the shop who work for me have to wear bow ties as well. What, may I ask why bow ties? When I was interviewing, I did, we didn't start out always wearing bow ties, but we started selling them. And then over time, the more people who came for interviews, for work, I mean, people just showed up looking like they'd just been abandoned by a pirate ship. <laughs> you know, and so I just said, well, you can, this is not who we are. So I decided yeah. that our dress code would be, you know, at a very high standard. Mm -hmm. So that if somebody wanted to work with us or for us, they would look at us and go, well, they're, they're the, that's the kind of standard they have. And it would weed out a lot of people coming in with amulets and piercings uh, and tattoos yes. and saying, you know, I want to work here. And I'm going, what would make you think you would fit in with us? Right. You know, and, and that wouldn't mean they're bad, good or bad people. It's, it's not a judgment like, call. It's like, this is our gang yeah. and this is what we do. What does your gang do? What, what's the difference between a bow tie and a tie? Or what is a bow tie saying that a tie does not say? It's been said that if you want to um, get off jury duty, wear a bow tie. Really? Because they say it's impossible to change a man's mind if he's wearing a bow tie. <laughs> it's a single-minded thing. So have you thought about that statement when, when thinking about wearing bow ties in your shop? Yeah. Like we're, we're, yeah. We have a, there's a fortitude of, of uh, thought here. That's it. Or, it's a belief system of um, yeah. you know, doing things a certain way and trying to do things well and not in, um, n in no way a snobby or you know, offhand way, but trying to do things well. And the best thing I think about what we do is that everybody who comes in feels welcome. Mm -hmm. And people come back, and I've been told this more than once, that they come back and it's a sort of a cheers analogy whereby everybody knows your name. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's a place where people can come and they're known and they're, you know, after years of people coming in, you get to know all about the, you know, their, their life, basically. The dog died, their son ran away, you yeah. know, their daughters, pregnant I mean, all this well, so you get to become I won't say family but very close to these people they get close to you so the loyalty to the shop and, and the people builds how long have you been married 25,000 years I think, <laughs> or since the Bronze Age what do you think the the most difficult time in your life was and and what got you through it I would say the most difficult time in my life was when I moved to London first on my own mm-hmm and um, you know it was I was living in a room the size of a shoe, actually size of a shoebox, but I think it was a platform shoebox. So it was a little <laughs> bigger than most boxes. And it was just hard being out on your own. When you come from a family where you're just in this massive crowd of people your entire life, and then you're in this little box in London on your own, and you're like trying to make it work. And, oh, yeah. You know, you haven't got enough money to make, you know, you're barely making the rent, and you're sort of, yeah. but the whole, and then the whole of the uh, metropolis is outside, and it's all just happening, and you're like trying to find your way through it. That was a tough time. What do you do for yourself when you're having a rough time, one way or the other? Um, and especially for people listening to the show that might look upon someone like you to... I, you know. I think it's, you just know, you've got to tell yourself, this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. It's temporary. It's how you feel is not how it is. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you feel bad, you feel depressed, fed up, angry about stuff, but it goes, it'll, it, it can't always be like this, and it ne- wasn't always like this. So you have to tell yourself, there's two things. You've got to have this argument inside with yourself. And you can, sometimes you might drink too much, and I don't mean like on a bender for weeks or anything. You might go out a couple of nights and drink too much, and, that's, and that will hurt. And then sure, yeah. you might sort of have a little road rage. Mm-hmm. You might you know, be hooting, tooting your horn or whatever. But um, I think you have to say to yourself that, and then if you look around and say, well, why are you like this? Say, well, you know, um, the shop got looted or somebody keyed your car or, yeah. you know, you usually find reasons. Okay, so that's it. Well, that's, you know, and, and then you analyze. I find I analyze the reasons why I'm in this so situation. You're kind of more self-aware. Through being self-aware, you're able to kind of yeah. tease out what's causing it. Yeah, and, and then you can deal with it. Make a decision dealing with it. Yeah. As opposed to having it overwhelm you, and before you know it, you're depressed, you're angry, and you go, "Why are they? Are they valid?" You know, you know, you might be, you might be. I would be depressed for this. I'd be angry about that. I'd be pissed off about that. So it's okay to be pissed, angry, and depressed at the same time, and drink too much for a few days. Doesn't mean you're in the end. It's the end of the world. Right, and you right. have to sort of let yourself go with it, and um, you know, don't show up for work. You know, they won't. There's no firing squads for that. Right. You know, <laughs> and just say fuck it. As long as nobody dies, I think the main thing is as long as there's no corpse, no coffin, no funeral, and no funeral bill. Right. Um, you'll be fine. So, <laughs> um, what do you think? Uh, how would you like to be remembered? Do you think one day? I think. Um, as someone who had a sense of fair play, mm-hmm. you know. Now, mm-hmm. you know, as people say, people usually on the right and usually people with money, you know, um, life ain't fair. Of course it's not fair. Nature is a hanging judge. Mm-hmm. If we all got what we deserved in life, we'd starve. And that's the facts of life. But yeah. because we're human and because we have choices, it's a way to, you have to try and make it a little bit fair. It's up to us as human beings to try and make it, to challenge all of the stuff out there and say, well, you know, let's try and make it a little fairer. Not, you know, you want to revolutionize the world, but in your time and in your life, we deal with you. Just be fair. What do you think you've done? How, how does that translate to your time here in New Orleans, too? Or anything particular that you've done which has um, connoted that idea of being fair? Fair. Well, there was a barber who lost his shop at Katrina. Mm-hmm. Totally destroyed, like eight feet of water. And when he got back in town, it was gutted out. So... There was nothing left of the shop except a small sign, about ten inches by three inches. That was the whole thing was got gone in the in a dumpster, you know, disappeared yeah. as if alien beings had taken it, it away. And he was on a street corner, um, in the disused gas station with a generator and a little office chair and a pair of clippers, and he was cutting hair mm-hmm. of his clients. And they were coming back in town, and there were people lined up around the block. I heard about him. I saw. I was complaining about my lot, as we do, you know. Yeah, stand, sure. you know lost yeah. all the staff, got looted, blah, blah, blah. And someone said, well, at least you're not in the streets. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, there's a guy up in there. And I, so I couldn't believe it. So I drove up the next Monday, I think, to see him. And I saw him on the corner. And that was probably the moment of the storm when I thought, I need to have a good old-fashioned cry now. Yeah. Because it looked so terrible. I was, like, des- I was like, here's a guy who lost his shop. He's on the street. Yeah. He's not giving up. So I made a commitment there and then to him and, and just to the whole whatever that I would get him, help him, help him get back in the shop. And we were really successful with that. Um, I had a fundraiser. There were various organizations who were doling out money, but he didn't seem to be a good candidate. Mm-hmm. According to them, I didn't yeah. agree with them. Yeah. And I wanted them to give him a, a $5,000 and they wouldn't. 
So I basically gave them the finger, mm -hmm. said, go fuck yourself, and had a fundraiser at the shop, mm -hmm. cigars and whiskey evening, and we raised $4,200. Oh, that's fantastic. And we gave him all the money. We didn't keep any for expense. We gave him all the money, and then I gave him one of my, which was you know a lot for me, to one of my prized barber chairs. I gave him that and a couple of barber poles and some really? stuff. What's this, what's this gentleman's name? Chill, Mr. Chill's Barbershop on Carrollton. On Carrollton, yeah. So we spent a year going around with him to different locations to find a premises and discovered a lot about racism in, in the city and how people react. So he got back yeah. in the shop and it's like, great, you know, it was, it sort of gave me, it, it gives you something to anchor to outside of your own situation. You go, yeah. okay, I'm, I'm fed up, angry, depressed and all the rest of it. And then you say, well, then you focus on somebody else who's, as they said, there's always someone worse off than there was. Well, almost, I mean, it seems to be that you're, um, you know, you say that you're, you're fair, that you played it fair, uh, right? But and I, I see from just you talking to me about this, with you coming back after Katrina, setting up shop, the whole no surrender idea, and then helping out that gentleman, that it's, you, you know, it's more than fair. You're almost like a soldier for people that are, you know, underprivileged or down on their luck. And, I, and it seems like it kind of, it does extend from your days in Dublin, which were um, reminiscent of post-Katrina, you know, minus the flood, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? For, but the living in cramped quarters. Uh, yeah, I think there's a, a lot to be said for, um, there's a lot of waste um, in the world, in, in generally, but in society, there's a lot of waste in New Orleans whereby, I think, in, and in America itself, whereby people don't, need or don't often want a lot more. They're not mm -hmm. looking for, you know, ma uh, despite the popular television lifestyles of the rich and famous and mm -hmm. the Kardashians mm -hmm. and all of those vulgar, vile mm -hmm. shows, people are just looking for a little more to get by and get on and get up. Yeah. You know, they're not, Most it's people. not 20, it's, they're not looking for $50 an hour like auto workers. Right, right. But they certainly need more than seven twenty-five an hour. People need, and there's a lot of great talent wasted in anywhere in the world because people just got stuck at that level and they never got past it. And it, you, it didn't need a massive scholarship. It didn't need, you know, $100,000 investment. It needs just a little bit to push people A little bit of grease to keep it going. Or to make and to it, move people yeah. onwards and upwards. And I think that's, uh, you know, people who work for us, who work for me, make pretty damn good money. There's no, I couldn't go to bed at night, go home and, you know, have my nice car and my nice home and think that I had employees in my shop who were living in shit. Right. So I always make sure that, and I tell people that, you know, there's, the onus is on them to work and do the job, but the chances and the opportunity to make seriously good money is there. Mm -hmm. And so far, everybody who's worked for me has made good money mm -hmm. and are still making it and will make more. So that's, put, feeds into my sense of fair play and, and giving people a chance and, and encouraging them to get past where they were. Well, we're lucky to have you here in New Orleans, it's for certain. I'm supposed to say I'm glad to be here, but sometimes I am and sometimes I'm not. Mindset is produced by Jennifer Casey. Technical direction by Eric Morrill. Mindset music is composed and performed by Alexis Marceau and Sam Kraft. Mindset is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com. You know Labor Day signals the unofficial end of summer, but not the end of your outdoor projects. 
Lowe's helps you do it right and helps you save with Labor Day deals throughout the store. Shop now and get two bags of Stay Green Potty Mix for $12. And keep your lawn looking neat and trim with a Craftsman 2-Cycle 17-inch gas string trimmer now $20 off at just $119. Whatever's still on your to-do list this Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 828. Soil offer excludes Alaska and Hawaii, U.S. only.